Hello and good morning. We're beginning or starting again our series in the study of Luke. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already, open up your Bible or the Pew Bible to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be there. I'd love to have you watch and look at the Word of God as we look at it together. Luke wants us to know who Jesus is. That's his intention. And in the early events of Jesus' life, up to this point, chapters 1, 2, 3, and the early verses of chapter 4, Luke's making it clear that Jesus is the Son of God, that there's no doubt about it. Through the events of Jesus' birth and all the people that gave testimony about that, John the Baptist's teaching at uh, when Jesus was baptized, heaven confirmed, the Holy Spirit came down as a dove. God the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son. Jesus successfully resisted Satan's first attempts or early attempts to tempt him. He resisted, he, he overcame through the word of God. So Luke's intention is to assure us, no doubt, Jesus is the Christ. Don't miss it. So, since Jesus is the promised deliverer, the, the promised Messiah, the one God promised to send, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, he promised to send a deliverer that would crush Satan's head. Jesus is saying here, I'm the one. And in Luke chapter 4, Donna read those verses. This was Jesus' manifesto. What's a manifesto? It's a public declaration. This is who I am, and this is what I am about. This is what I will do. A public declaration. So what is Jesus' ministry all about? Maybe you notice the sermon title of the day, today is What Jesus is About. What is Jesus about? What is his mission? What are his intentions? Well, Luke wants us to know so early on in his account, in Luke chapter 4, he brings us to this scene in Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, because he wants to show us Jesus' public declaration so we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we're going to be looking at three main ideas today. What is Jesus about? Well, let's look at his early ministry. In verses uh, 14 and 15, uh, Donna read, we read again, and Jesus returned from the temptation from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He came back to his home region. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. I want you to know, in those two verses, Luke has summarized Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Because his intention isn't to give all the details of what Jesus did there. He wants to bring us to this important event in his hometown. So he, Luke skips over many details. His gospel is very accurate. Remember, eyewitnesses, he researched it. It's accurate. But Luke was guided by the Spirit of God to help us, us and his friend Theophilus, know who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. So he draws our attention to this event. It's a significant event. And we're going to see 
not only the Jesus ministry in Galilee was exciting and people were talking about this new teacher, Jesus. His miracles and his teaching drew a lot of attention. But we also see from the town of Nazareth, and this is the sad side of the story, that most people didn't really understand who Jesus was. Maybe you're familiar with John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We often look at these verses, and John in his Gospel says this, speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So what John reports in his gospel, Luke shows us that it's coming true, that this is a reality. So many people, the whole world, but especially God's chosen people, the Jewish people, most missed who Jesus was. They did not believe in him. They did not know him. Jesus is in Galilee, he's in Nazareth, he's in his hometown, and we're going to see that these people, this generation's descended who lived there, their fathers, their forefathers did the exact same thing when Elijah and Elisha, the great prophets, spoke God's truth and did mighty miracles like no other time in the history of the Bible, I believe. And yet most people refused to turn to God. So we see here in these opening verses that Jesus' intention, Luke's intention, is to show us who Jesus is, and we see Jesus' ministry strategy. He comes to the synagogue. He was filled with the Spirit of God, and, and Luke makes that emphasis a couple times in these early verses. He's filled with the Spirit. God the Son, who is mighty and powerful, but humbled himself and gave up some of his glory, served his father perfectly through the strength of the Spirit. His teaching and miracles caught the people's attention, and his hometown was excited that he had come back. Synagogues were key places for God's people to learn of God, to build community together. They read from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses' books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then they would read from the prophets. And on this day, Jesus, as a special guest, because of his reputation, is given the scroll to read, quite an honor, and he reads from the book of Isaiah. And he stood to read God's word to show respect, and then he sat down to teach. And Jesus made quite a stir. And Luke wants us to see what that's all about. What is Jesus about? Well, Jesus tells us here about his ministry, and then we see our ministry too. This is a spirit-guided ministry. Look at verse 18. This is what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus. And now Jesus is declaring that he is the one, that the spirit of the Lord is on him. He was a chosen servant Isaiah talked about many times in his prophecy, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 61, which is being quoted here. Jesus is saying, I am the one. This is my mission. This is the one God promised to send. I'm the Messiah, and I will accomplish 
everything that God said that he would do through his prophet, through his Messiah, and I am the one. Are you surprised, or maybe I should highlight again, I just turned away from it, but I want to look at it again. Listen to what Jesus said his mission is about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is going to accomplish all that God intended him to, that the people of Israel were supposed to be a witness to and to do as well, and they failed miserably. Let me just share, back in Isaiah chapter 58, listen to how Israel failed to do these very things. This is God speaking to his people. Is that the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself, to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So here were God's people. They were, they were mourning the way God wanted them to. They were, they were fasting. They weren't eating. They were covering themselves with dust. They were putting on scratchy, itchy clothes to make themselves miserable so that they could focus on God. But God says, that's not the kind of fast I want. Not some ceremony, some ritual. Listen to what God wants. Is this not the fast that I choose? He says in verse 6 of Isaiah 58. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourselves from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard and then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday and the Lord will guide your con you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I took time to read that because it almost surprises us that God doesn't say something about sin and forgiveness. Now, I want you to know that it's not about we don't earn salvation by doing these kind of things. But these works reflect a heart that is changed by God to love and to care for those who are less fortunate, who do not know God or his grace or his mercy or his forgiveness that's available through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We fail just like Israel, don't we? But Jesus will never fail to deliver. He will not fail to obey God's mandate, 
his mission manifesto. He will rescue. The good shepherd will lay down his life and pay for our sins so that we can have life, so we can live and serve God in holy righteousness, so that we have the power, the spirit of God living in us like it's in him so that we can actually do the works of God for his glory, for God's glory. So Jesus reads this and says, this is why I have come, to deliver sinners from sin, to deliver the oppressed from oppression. I've come to deliver spiritually souls that are separated from God. I've come to deliver physical needs to show that I am a God of mercy. This is my mission and I will accomplish it. So you see, Jesus's full salvation is spiritual and physical in nature. He's preaching good news to the poor. Who are the poor? Well, we can't deny that it's people being referred to who are socially and economically limited. That's obvious. That's part of it. The Old Testament taught that the pious poor, people of faith, who were oppressed or afflicted because they trusted in God and unbelievers poured out their wrath on them, they're in mind as well. The humble believing poor whose hearts are ready to follow God. Mary sung about them in her song. Look back at Luke chapter 1 in her uh, Mary's song uh, when she was in, uh, with Elizabeth in Luke 1, 51 through 53. She sings about these pious believing poor. James speaks about the poor in his, in his letter. In James chapter 2, if a rich man comes in and a poor man comes in and we treat them differently, then we're not obeying God. So... There's this whole idea of not only spiritually being poor, separated from God, poverty in the presence uh, in, in relationship with God, but then poverty physically, that Jesus is here to deliver us from all of it, spiritual and physical needs. Jesus came to reach the rich because the rich need forgiveness. Jesus came to reach the moderately well-off because we need his physical and spiritual deliverance. Our relationship with God is broken and it needs to be healed and he came to fix it all. Jesus came to reach the poor. Realize Jesus offers us citizenship in God's kingdom. That's here now. The kingdom of God is here now. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are a part of that kingdom. It's here now, but not yet. <laughs> it's not here in all its fullness. There's still a lot of spiritual brokenness. There's still a lot of physical need in this world, but the kingdom of God will overcome it all for those who trust, who believe, who would follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and surrender themselves to him. This language that Luke has recorded for us from Isaiah is year of jubilee language. Do you know what the year of jubilee was? Well, look back in Leviticus, if you have your Bibles, to chapter 25 of Leviticus, and listen to what this description of the year of Jubilee. It was to happen every 50 years in the land of Israel. They didn't do it, but they were supposed to. 
Listen to what they were supposed to do in verse 8 of chapter 25 of Leviticus. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So after 49 years, it's the 50th year, they were to blow some trumpets, and on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, shall sound the trumpets throughout your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows itself nor what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay a neighbor according to the number of years of the jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years of the crops. And if the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price for the number of crops. You shall not wrong one another. You shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. I read that whole context just to show you. This was like God's social program. You know what? If your dad and mom messed up or if your grandpa and your grandmother messed up and they lost property and they were enslaved, they were paying off debt, they were in debt, just guess what? After 50 years, your family got to go back and own the land that was originally yours. Fresh start. Debts removed. Fair prices paid. If you had lost the land for 50 years, then you had to pay a fair price for 50 years of crops. If you only had two years in debt that way, you only had to pay for two years. You had to be fair. That was God's way. And you weren't even supposed to plant that year. You're just supposed to eat off the land. That meant you had to trust God to provide. But trust me, and it'll be a year of jubilee. So that's the imagery that Jesus is speaking about in Isaiah 61 that he's read in the synagogue in Nazareth. He's saying, God is now providing for you a year, an eternal year, eternal, never-ending year of jubilee. Your deliverer is here. Will you trust in him and surrender your lives to him and obey him and dare to follow? And you will be delivered spiritually, You'll have a right relationship with God again if you seek his forgiveness. If you ask for it, he will give it, and he will provide for you. Will you dare trust him? That is the kingdom that Jesus is offering the people in Nazareth and to you and me right now. The beginning of this kingdom that's to come. Freedom from sin's tyranny of death and pain into a restored relationship with our creator that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And then physical salvation. One day, you're not going to have to worry about your retirement plan. Is anybody here worried about their retirement plan? Imagine not having to worry about it. Not to think about, if I lose my job, what will we do? Because God promises to take care of you if you 
trust in him. One day, it's going to become a reality. And in the meantime, we are to live in such a way that we let one another taste a little bit of that care as we love God and love one another and care for one another so that no one is in need. That's amazing. That's the kingdom of God that we're being invited to, to be a part of, to begin to show the world what it means to follow Jesus. We're different because we believe in a God who has power to do what he says. How in the world can you and I ever hope to do what Jesus says his kingdom's about. We can because we have the Spirit of God living in us. Have you believed in Christ? Then Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost is for you and me. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are baptized in his name, identify with him, then it says the Spirit of God is what? Will be given to you and to your children, to everyone who believes in him. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that the Spirit of God was given to us when we believed in him. He seals us, makes, puts his stamp on us, and says, you are mine. So believers in Christ, we not only have the Spirit that enables us to trust God and obey God, to, to follow and trust him, but then we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, not to get drunk on wine, but to be filled or drunk on the Spirit of God, to be controlled by Him. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we grieve Him, but we're to confess those sins, and then He, he refills us and controls us. So the year of Jubilee is like this amazing declaration that Jesus is giving here, this fresh start. And when you believe in Christ, you have been given a fresh start to begin life anew, to regain what you've lost, to be lived differently for God's glory. I ask you this question this morning, are you ready to be a part of that coming kingdom? The kingdom that's here and the kingdom that's coming in its fullness. Are you willing to be a part of that? Is that what Jesus, that is the kingdom that Jesus is offering his friends, his neighbors in Nazareth and to you and to me. Why would anyone say no to that? What Jesus is about, the time of God's favor. Back to Luke chapter 4. We need to read the response. And to make sure our response isn't like the people's response in Nazareth. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you. No prophet is accepted in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to, to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through their midst. He went away. Jesus is making this amazing declaration. I'm the Messiah. I'm the appointed one. I'm here to do the Father's will to save us from our sins, to be the sacrificial lamb that will take away the sins of the world. I'm the promised prophet, priest, and king. I'm here to accomplish all that God commanded me to do, the God the Father, and I will bring, do, and bring what I promise, what I say. And the hometown, how did they respond to that? (laughs) Well, they spoke well of him, Jesus was a really, 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 really good preacher and teacher. He amazed the crowds. They literally all witnessed to him. They said, this guy is amazing. Isn't this Joseph's son? We're surprised that one of our own can be such a great preacher. I love what Leon Moore says in his commentary. They were astonished by his preaching, but that didn't mean they were ready to accept it. They liked what he said, but they weren't ready to follow. Hey, we know who you are and where you're from. You're one of us. You're making some awfully big boast here, mister. Can you really back it up? We've heard what you did in Capernaum, all these miracles. Well, do it here. Show us what you got. They didn't really believe Jesus was the Savior, the Messiah. Mark tells us that Jesus did few miracles in his hometown because they didn't believe. They couldn't believe. Their eyes were closed. They were blinded to the truth. They did not want to accept it. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. He's saying something. This is true. Get this point. God desires to deliver you, to give you a year of jubilee, but here's the second truth. You people do not want to accept God's deliverance. It's here for you but you do not want it. And let me compare you with past generations. Remember the prophet Elijah? Elijah did some amazing miracles, right? People should have believed. He called down fire from heaven. (laughs) He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. That's pretty amazing stuff. That's amazing power with God. And you know what? People did not want to follow him. So when there was a need, who did he go to? Not to an Israelite, not to a chosen Jewish widow. He went to a Gentile widow. And God was gracious to her because she believed. There were a lot of lepers in Israel when Elisha was around, and Elisha's ministry was filled with amazing miracles. But Elisha didn't heal any Jewish lepers. He went to a Gentile who believed, and he was healed, Naaman. And that got the Jews in Nazareth really upset. You know, when Elijah was around, 7,000 people didn't bow their knee to Baal. Well, that's better than none, right? That's so few 
compared to the many thousands who lived and were bowing their knee to the false god of Baal. So Jesus is saying to his neighbors, you are no better than the unbelievers who lived in Elijah and Elisha's time. You are just like them. As a matter of fact, you're worse because someone greater than Elijah and Elisha is here and you will not accept his deliverance. The people of Israel didn't understand God's desire for the world. They wanted God to deliver them. They wanted to make Israel a great nation and God's going to do that. They wanted to be prosperous and to rule over all the people. But they thought their bloodline, they thought their heritage was enough, and it wasn't that at all. It was faith, it was belief, it was turning to God and humbly accepting his, their need for forgiveness. I want you to know something. There isn't a nation in the world, a people in the world, that's not prone to be proud of their nation and their heritage. I get it. I'm glad to be a part of the United States of America. But do you comprehend that our nation is nothing compared to the kingdom of God? That it will not provide what Jesus is offering us, as good as it might seem to be. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the Hebrews says this, See to it that you do, you do not refuse him who is speaking. The Israelites heard God speaking on Mount Sinai when the law of Moses came. And they kind of refused that law. Thou shalt not have any other gods before you, before me. And a few weeks later, there was another God before them in the form of an idol. They did not listen. And Jesus is saying, I'm speaking. God himself is speaking to you here in Nazareth, and yet you refuse me. In verse 28 in Hebrews, it says this, Therefore, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If you refuse Jesus' words, if you play the game, you will lose out. When we begin to understand the kingdom of God, then our national pride is going to dissipate. And when greater things are going to be important to us than anything this world or nation or government can offer us. Do our ministry declarations and actions match up with Jesus's? People in Nazareth missed out on Jesus, what Jesus came to bring them. They thought they had a righteousness superior to other nations, and it was not true. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, there's a church called Laodicea. And they evaluated themselves, and they thought they were really well off. They thought their heritage... Now, 60 years after Jesus' ascension to heaven, 60 years later, here's this church, probably second, third generation of Christians here, and they thought they were just really something. And you know what Jesus evaluated them as? You're blind, you're naked, you can't see, 
You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You make me sick. They were like the people in Nazareth. They thought they were okay. They thought they were special, but they were, they were missing it. They weren't in tune with God or his mandate, his manifesto for ministry of the gospel in the world. Don't be like that church. In Romans 10, we have this amazing offer. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That is the only way to get into God's kingdom. That is how to do it. Jesus disappointed the people in Nazareth. Has Jesus ever disappointed you? <laughs> they wanted to see a miracle, but Jesus came to bring so much more than just miracles. He came to change us. How about you and me? Are we going to miss the kingdom of God because we want God's kingdom to conform and God's gospel to conform to our ideas of justice and mercy and love and forgiveness? Don't make the mistake are you a follower of christ then you're a citizen of god's unshakable kingdom and, and and allow god's desires for his people and for the nations not only our nation but the nations of the world to shape your desires to shape your prayers to shape how you live on your uh monday mornings whether it's school or work or at home wherever it is what makes a nation great by the way that phrase gets thrown around in our circles, doesn't it? What makes a nation great? Is it not the nation who loves justice, loves mercy, and humbly walks with God? That's what makes a nation great. Don't allow human pride cloud your vision like the people of Nazareth. Know Jesus' manifesto, what he came, what he's about, what he came to do. Elder Glenn it's about to lead us in communion. We're here to celebrate Jesus' willing sacrifice that enables us to enter his kingdom and to be cleansed from our sins. And it's through Christ that we have a new hope and the power to do the work of Christ that he called us to do. To bring deliverance to people. Physical deliverance and spiritual deliverance. So they can be a part of God's unshakable kingdom. Prepare your hearts to celebrate that new life in Christ, and then to humbly surrender and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would soften our hearts today and use your word, your truth, your mission statement to penetrate our hearts so you shape us into new people who look more and act more like you. I pray that that would be true for all of us, whether we're old or young, in school or at work or retired, whatever, Lord, change us, make us, convince us of your greatness and help us to trust you and obey you more and more this week because of what you've done for us. We pray this all in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.